Hello, and welcome to the History of the Cards, episode 76, The Mess of a Hacking. So we last stopped with Zachariah, the Coptic patriarch locked away in a desert monastery, while the holy man Buhaira reputation was growing. By 1014, Al-Hakim's interest in enforcing his decrees on the Christians and Jews have waned significantly. A group of formerly Christian government officials who had converted under Bashar went as far as requesting from the Caliph to go back to Christianity. And he basically responded along the lines of, yeah, sure, why not? One of those officials named Bimon, not only converted back, but also became a monk, building a monastery in the suburbs of Cairo with the permission and the patronage of Al-Hakim, who tremendously enjoyed coming to this monastery and its quiet gardens. It was more or less a private retreat villa for the caliph from the busy and loud Cairo Fustat. Sibimon ended up close to the caliph, in a way, representing the Copts, replacing the patriarch. So for a while, Bukhaira was leading the community from the bottom, spiritually and performing secret liturgies in people's houses, weaving a fabric of a connected church, and Bimon handled things from the top, administratively, handing petitions and requests from the Coptic community to the Caliph. But both of them, as good children of the church, were eager to give up their influence and bring back the patriarch. And so they acted. Bimon the monk sent for the patriarch to come to his monastery and hide there, while he tries to open up the subject with Al-Hakim. When Al-Hakim finally came and was in a good mood, the monk brought Zachariah, dressed humbly as any other monk, rather than in the vestments of the patriarch. The caliph, not recognizing him, asked, Who is this? To which Biman responded, saying that he was, quote, Our father, the patriarch. And then he pointed to the bishops that were present and said, All of these men obey the patriarch. At this, the caliph was greatly amused. Zechariah was, in the words of his biographer, quote, of small stature, sin-bearded, and ugly by nature. While the bishops present with their full vestment wore elders of handsome aspect, splendid in appearance. Not only these men obeyed the patriarch, Bowman said, but also every single clergyman from Libya to Ethiopia. Al-Hakim was intrigued. Maybe this insignificant Zachariah was pretty significant after all. Maybe he should keep him around. And so he decreed that the patriarch could come back and resume his duties around the year 1019. And just like that, the patriarchy was active again 
and the previous decade of persecution had officially ended. Nonetheless, sir, pretty quickly the limitations of Zechariah became apparent, and his authority was tested. John the monk, remember him? Well, he showed up right away, and demanded to be ordained a bishop. And again, he and the nephew of the patriarch clashed and physically fought each other. Eventually so, Demon and a group of bishops intervened, and John was ordained a priest with a promise to elevate him when the diocese opens up. A promise that was eventually fulfilled. Soon after this episode, Al-Hakim reached his limit of testing what is possible. He was no longer interested in enforcing any of the decrees of Islam. Now, he saw himself as literally the manifestation of God. Now, he never said it out loud, but he kept coming closer and closer to the idea. First, he allowed, perhaps encouraged, a fringe group of Shia missionaries to ascribe to him divine status in 1018. Then, he basically stopped practicing Islam altogether, going as far as walking into mosques and eating in midday in the middle of Ramadan, a fasting month observed by all Muslims. This, as you expect, raised the ire of the Sunni mob of Fustat. The missionary who led the movement to deify Al-Hakim was killed by Turkish soldiers, pissed off at his blasphemy. And in response to that killing, or perhaps as a badly timed coincidence, a huge fire broke out in Fustat, and everyone, fairly or not, saw that Al-Hakim, again, like Nero of old, was behind the fire. This dynamic of Al-Hakim increasingly acting like a distant, uninterested god, and the population, or more dangerously, the army, slowly coming around to rejecting him violently, culminated in a bizarre incident, where the caliph either ascended into heaven to take his righteous place of divinity, or much more likely, assassinated by his sister, who could no longer tolerate his behavior. The story, as relayed by both Christian and Muslim sources, simply states that the caliph went on one of his long walks over al Muattam in eastern Cairo and never returned. Presumably, in the middle of his walk, he told his guard to return to the palace and leave him alone. The guard obeyed, and the caliph never returned, and his body was never found. And so, the mess of al-Hakim lived on. The group that ascribed him divinity ended up settling in Syria, and preached that he has disappeared and will return in the end of the world. That group, known as the Druze, still exists today. Also, as you would expect, their beliefs have evolved a bit over the years. The Druze and mainstream Islam have a very complicated relationship. 
Most of the Druze nowadays actually live in modern Israel, not in any Muslim countries. But yeah, like I said when we started the narrative of Al-Hakim's reign, he tested the very nature of Islam itself and was very close to breaking the whole thing. Fatmids, Caliphate, all of it. Not to worry so. His sister, probably the one behind his assassination, was as good as a savior as you can get. She, quickly, with the help of a North African general, took control of the court and elevated Al-Hakim's 16-year-old, weak-minded son, who took the name of Al-Zahir, a caliph just in name, as she was the undisputed ruler of the land. So yeah, here we have a caliphate led by a woman, an extraordinary competent one. And in that respect, she ruled in a complete opposite manner of her brother, rationally, with a firm hand, and with a clear-eyed way forward. Al-Hakim's sycophants were quickly killed or removed from the palace within a couple of weeks, and competent men took their place. Next, spending by the government was cut, and the treasury, empty when Al-Hakim died, started to get full again. And lastly, through a mix of handouts to Arab tribes and diplomacy, she kept things stable in Syria, where Bedouin tribes were filling up a bower vacuum left by Al-Hakim, mental absence. Unfortunately, her rule did not last that long, only four or five years, depending on the source. Enough to fill up the treasury and put capable men in charge, but not much else. The most notable of those men who were left in charge were two guys, one in Cairo and one in Damascus. The first, the vizier in Cairo, was a guy named Al-Jurjari from a humble Iraqi origins who emigrated to Egypt looking for a job in the court of Al-Hakim which, as you would expect, had plenty of openings because of the Persians. He ended up taking a low-level post, which only led to his hands being cut off after opening a letter that he was not supposed to open. You know, typical in Al-Hakim's court. Nonetheless, his talent was noticed by Sitt al-Mulk, and he ended up being the person executing the cut in the government spending. And so, when she died, he was in a very good position. An important voice, but only one in a group of many. It took him a couple of years after her death for him to eliminate most of these voices and essentially accumulate most of the power of the caliphate around himself. Taking most of the important decision was that really the involvement of the weak teenage caliph, Al-Zahir. The second important man was a Turkish slave soldier, also from a very humble origins. He ended up leading a small army against a massive Bedouin rebellion, who decided that the death of Sittul Mulk was a good opportunity to raid Syria. 
Not only he defeated them, he was extremely popular with the locals around Damascus. As such, he ended up in charge of Syria for the next 12 years, while Jojari ended up being the vizier until 1045, close to two decades. Both of these men, building on the foundation laid down by Sittelmulk, initiated a long reign of peace, where the state was prosperous and barring a few bad Nile floods, things were pretty good on the whole. Even the relationship with the Byzantines ended up improving significantly after a small war over Aleppo in 1036 and a good peace treaty that followed. A peace treaty that allowed for the Church of the Holy Sepulchre to be rebuilt with money from the Romans. A project that took place from 1042 to 1049. And as the Romans were paying, and this was a tough time economically for them, the church ended up being a shadow of its former glory. We are just about a generation removed before a critical period in Anatolia, where Turkish tribes are about to overrun the place, which will make the Byzantine emperor call for the help of the Pope, i.e. another spark in the fire of the Crusades. And that's where we are going to stop from the geopolitical side of things, in the 1040s AD. Al-Zahir would be actually dead by this point, but it doesn't really matter, as he was never really in charge. In the meantime, in the Coptic church, Zechariah died in 1032, giving him a good 13 years or so of peace. In this period, his tribulation in the reign of Al-Hakim and his simplicity made him something of a saint. Legends grew up around him that he can heal the sick. Specifically, leprosy was a particular method that was actually quite interesting. We are told of a man who Michael, Bishop of Tennis, basically describes as somewhat openly gay. Like a secret that everyone knew about, and he was not really trying super hard to hide it. But he was married anyway, to keep up with the medieval cultural norms. Anyway, this man was struck with liberty, and so he sought out the patriarch. Zechariah instructed him to essentially soak his body in salt for 40 days, with, as you would expect, fasting and prayers. What you know? 40 days later, he is cured of his liberty. Which is super fascinating, as we know now that salt is known to inhibit bacterial growth. And there's actually a couple of case reports of similar treatment methods in the early 20th century. So yeah, the symbol patriarch had a few complex layers that shone during those peaceful years. And like I said, by the time he died, he was extremely popular with the common folks. 
he passed away in 1032, right in the middle of a very prosperous time, when Al-Jujari was at the peak of his power. And speaking of him, he was described as, quote, a man who understood and loved the Christians. So at the very least, he had a very tolerant worldview. When Zechariah died, not only he allowed Buhaira, the natural leader after the death of Zechariah, to take charge of the whole process, he gave him a very sound advice and waived the 3,000 dinars that the patriarch would pay to the treasury at his elevation. Basically, Al-Jujari's advice was to rationalize the process of electing patriarch, to put down rules that can be used in every election, in essence, to get away from the type of process that produced Zachariah and use one that can funnel good leaders into the patriarchy. And it wouldn't be really reinventing the wheel. From his experience in Iraq and Syria, al jujari advice was to do something very similar to what the Antokian church was doing, which was also something that the Coptic church have used historically once or twice over our journey. His recommendation was to quote, assemble in the church and select from those who are in the monasteries a hundred men, and from the hundred fifty, and from the fifty twenty-five, and from the twenty-five ten, and from the ten three. Then write the names of the three on three pieces of paper, and on the fourth write the name of the Lord. Then, after praying the liturgy, have a child pick a random name from the four papers. If it's one of the monks, then he would be the patriarch. If it's the name of the Lord, then those three names are discarded, and the group have to come up with a new list. Pretty rational and sound, and Bukhaira liked it, and so was a small group of bishops. Unfortunately, they were overruled by the majority of the bishops, and the selection was done in the old way. Opaque, secretive, and was not much of the way of guidance, thus leaving a big room for side-dealing and quote-pro-quo agreements. Like the last few times, a respected and experienced pick emerged, but immediately he faced opposition as independent bishops feared losing their independence. And so, one of these bishops came up with a ridiculous criteria based on a dream that he had. Whoever is going to enter the church first tomorrow, that person would be the patriarch. Now, if you're on a skeptical side of things, this sounds a lot like a side deal, and there is a reason to think so. As the person who entered the church first was an ambitious monk named Chinuda, who was known for seeking the patriarchy. Also, lots of the bishops attending were very skeptical that Chinuda just happened to enter the church first, and so he did have his work cut out for him. He needed to convince a sufficient cohort of them to support him, 
with various means and methods. For example, Jean de Monk, remember him? Well, he was won over by a promise from Shenouda to give him 30 dinars every year and ordain his brother a bishop. The Alexandrian clergy, well, they were won over by reinstituting the 500 yearly dinars that Abraham ibn Zara used to do. Plus, to their credit, a promise from Shenouda that he would not sell their vacant clergy offices for money. Which, just so you know, he broke as soon as he was ordained as a patriarch, selling a vacant diocese for 600 dinars, 500 of which went to the Alexandrians, and 100 to the governor of Alexandria. For the rest of the bishops, he borrowed heavily from Muslim merchants, and used that money to essentially form a coalition that was able to push through his ordination to the patriarchy. To Michael, our primary source, and involved in the process as closely as you can get, Shinoda, quote, loved money and collected a great amount of it and gave it to his family. He was a lover of the glory of this world. His coalition was barely a majority and was really opposed by lots of folks. Most important of them was the civil elite in Cairo and the holy man, Bukhaira. And Shinoda, for his part, didn't really go out of his way to reconcile these guys once he became the patriarch. No, he doubled down and escalated the feud wisdom. At his first visit to Cairo Fustat, he made sure to put down the lines and, quote-unquote, establish his authority. His greeting to Bukhaira at his arrival was, quote, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. When Bukhaira asked him what does that mean, Shinoda blindly told him that, quote, the Lord has made me king without your choice. And this introduction basically killed off any hope of them getting along with each other. Within a year, Shinoda became extremely unlikable with more bad stumbles. First, he ordained a very unpopular person as the Bishop of Asyut for money. But the inhabitants of the city physically prevented the bishop from entering the city or taking his office. When the unpopular bishop came back to Shinoda asking for a refund, he basically told him, tough luck, and a wide swath of upper Egypt stayed with only a theoretical bishop rather than an actual one. Second, the bishop of Bahnesa, a wealthy city in Middle Egypt, died and he left a beautiful large house. Shunuda then confiscated the house with the intention to sell it. But the deceased bishop had family, specifically a brother, who wanted the house as his inheritance. He tried bleeding his case to Shunuda, but wasn't even giving an audience. And so, 
the brother converted to Islam and used the formal state courts which ruled in his favor. So yeah, not only Shnuda lost the house, but he also had to deal with the very bad optics of a brother of a bishop converting to Islam publicly and suing him. So, a pretty terrible start that will just keep getting worse. In the second year of his reign, when the time came to pay the Alexandrian their 500 dinars, Shinoda reneged on the agreement and refused to pay them anything. And so, they involved the governor of Alexandria and threatened to escalate the matter all the way to al himself. The civil elite in Cairo intervened so and managed to convince Shinoda to pay 350 dinars instead of the 500. In that meeting, Bukhaira actually played an instrumental role, getting the rich elites on the same page to pressure Shinoda to compromise with the promise of their financial help. The successful negotiation led Shinoda and Bukhaira to talk some more, and Bukhaira laid down a few things that Shinoda would need to do to win over the civil elite and their financial support. I'm pretty sure that the patriarch still did not like Bukhaira, or wanted to hear what he had to say. But he was pretty unpopular at the moment, and seeing things spiral out of control financially, with his loans coming due. So, the promise of financial support made him somewhat willing to hear what Bukhaira had to say. And Bukhaira, despite some grudges against Shinoda, did not want to see the office of the patriarch or the church as a whole descend farther in chaos. And so, he really wanted to help. Bukhaira's advice to the patriarch was, quote, It is essential that you should forsake the simony which you take, and that you should not sell the gift of God for money. At which point, Shinoda responded by saying that there is no other way to cover the expenses of the office and the taxes that he had to pay. And Bukhaira, with the civil elite in Cairo behind him, said that he would be responsible for fundraising and collecting donations to cover the amount, which by the way, was entirely realistic. Remember, this was a time of a great prosperity in Cairo, and the civil elite class was thriving. Yet, Shinoda did not like it. If he agreed, then in essence, he's giving Bukhaira a lot of control over how and when the money is spent. Not to mention, simony was not just a revenue source for him, but also for a lot of the bishops. They would not be happy if Shinoda decided to ban it and enforce the ban. Many of them have paid money with the expectation that they will be able to collect it back over the years. And now, if Shinoda listened to Bukhaira, they would not be able to recoup their investment. So, Shinoda didn't like it one bit. 
but he was in Buhaira's house at the time. Figuratively, the meeting was held in Cairo with the attendance of many important government officials and almost no bishops, but Michael, our source, who at this point was serving as Shinoda's secretary. So, so technically, not a bishop yet, but he was in the very inner circle. So like I said, an excellent source. Anyway, under a pressure, Chinuda signed a document agreeing to enforce the banning of simony. But almost in no time, when the word started to leak, several bishops came to Shinoda and lobbied him hard to cancel the agreement. Michael records for us a particular one who really ended up with the ear of the patriarch. He told Shinoda, quote, Why have you forsaken simony and pretend that you will not take anything from him whom you will make a bishop? What is this thing that you have done with yourself? You have listened to him who does not wish you well. The messaging was simple. Bukhaira is not your friend. He is an enemy and a rival. You do not listen to enemies and rivals. You eliminate. And so, Shinoda went about dealing with Bukhaira. Bukhaira's journey would end here. He had survived the reign of terror of Al-Hakim, the huge external threat to the community. But the internal bickering will get him. Next time, we will go through the last act of the life of Bukhaira, one that will see the end of his journey. Thank you for listening. Farewell and until next time. Mm-hmm.